is Hinter Tales. I'm Rachel Dunstan Muller with stories of curious people, places, and events from the margins of history. Back in the spring, I shared the story of the courageous musicians of Sarajevo, the cellist of Sarajevo, and the Sarajevo String Quartet, who risked their lives repeatedly to play during the siege. But long after that episode was finished, I continued to be haunted by this chapter of history. Something about it had gotten under my skin. Instead of putting my research materials away, I continued to read about the ordinary people of Sarajevo and how they had coped while their city was under attack, while they were cut off from the rest of the world for almost four years. Now, as I shared in that previous episode, the reasons for the conflict in Bosnia are quite complicated. But in order to enter this story, there are a few things you need to know. Before the war began in 1992, Sarajevo was a beautiful cosmopolitan city of half a million people, surrounded by mountains and intersected by a blue-green river. It had everything you would expect a European city to have—universities and libraries, art galleries and theaters, schools, office buildings, sports stadiums. But most important, Sarajevo had a reputation for its rich cultural diversity. Serbs and Bosniaks and Croats and even a small Jewish community all living side by side peacefully for more than 500 years. Their churches and synagogues and mosques often on the same block. Now, it wasn't quite paradise, of course. Sarajevo was in Yugoslavia, and for decades, Yugoslavia was a communist country. But as communism began to unravel right across Eastern Europe, Yugoslavia began to fall apart as well. Following a referendum on March 3, 1992, Bosnia and Herzegovina jointly declared their independence from Yugoslavia, with Sarajevo to be the new capital city. In response, hostile Serb forces immediately mustered in the surrounding hills. The first shells began to fall on Sarajevo a month later. And they kept falling for days and weeks and months and ultimately years, until the streets of Sarajevo were cratered and its most cherished buildings were in ruins until its trees had all been cut down for firewood and its beautiful parks had been turned into cemeteries. What do you do when your city is under siege? When the lights go dark and the phone lines are cut, when your faucets stop running and your food runs out? when everything you know has been turned upside down and even your smallest children are targeted by snipers. 
You do whatever you have to to survive. In the beginning, you huddle in the basement bunker beneath your apartment building. Mothers and toddlers, doctors and taxi drivers all mixed together with you. And when the shelling stops, temporarily, you send someone to stand in line for water or for bread or even for a single onion. Fear and hunger become your constant companions, but still you hold on to hope because that's all you have. Surely the world will not abandon your beloved city forever. But the world did not come to Sarajevo's rescue, at least not that year. Eight months after the siege began, the shells were still falling, the bullets still flying, the death count rising daily. On December 23rd of that first year of the siege, an American war correspondent named Peter Moss arranged for a ride in an armored Land Rover, bribed his way through the Serbian checkpoint, and entered the city. Like most other members of the foreign press, Peter had reserved a room in Sarajevo's Holiday Inn, which it's safe to say was unlike any other Holiday Inn on the planet at that moment. The entire south side of the hotel was a no-go zone, off-limits given that it was exposed to constant sniper fire. But the north side was reasonably safe, at least as safe as anywhere in Sarajevo, and that's where Peter had a room. Furthermore, Sarajevo's Holiday Inn had its own generator, although it only worked when the manager was able to acquire fuel on the black market. On the day that Peter arrived, there was no fuel, which meant there was no electricity, no heat, no running water. Peter had to use his own flashlight to find his way up four flights of stairs and down the hallway to his near-freezing room. But Peter wasn't in Sarajevo for a vacation, of course. He was there to see how its people were coping during their first Christmas under siege. And the place to start, he decided, was at a Catholic church on Christmas Eve. Now, Midnight Mass was not possible in Sarajevo in 1992, thanks both to the wartime curfew and to the fact that a packed church at midnight would have been far too tempting a bombing target. And so, instead, the parishioners of St. Anthony's had to content themselves with Mass celebrated in the church basement at four in the afternoon. Now, Peter really wasn't sure what to expect as he approached St. Anthony's. He knew that the people of Sarajevo literally risked their lives every time they stepped out of their homes. But that Christmas Eve, Mass was packed. And not just with Catholic Croats, but with Muslim Bosniaks and Orthodox Serbs as well, all 
standing side by side in their heavy winter coats, since there was no room in the crowded basement to sit. A choir at the back of the basement sang Silent Night behind them. And when it was their turn, the congregation joined in, their voices rising in a harmony that went far beyond music. After the service, Father Luchik, the presiding priest, confided to Peter that he was thrilled with the service, that it had brought so many people together and no bombs. Now I have to admit that I was a little incredulous when I first read this part of Peter's story, that Catholics and Orthodox Christians and Muslims had all joined together to participate in a Christmas Mass, even risking their lives to do so. But this is what I didn't know. In Sarajevo, it was a long-held tradition for neighbors to honor and even celebrate each other's holidays. On Christmas Day, Croatian families would welcome their Muslim and Orthodox friends into their homes. In turn, those same Croatian families would visit their Muslim friends on the first day of Ramadan and their Serbian friends on Orthodox Christmas, which is celebrated in early January. Peter Moss got to see this tradition in practice on Christmas Day when he and a British journalist named Kevin Sullivan were invited into a Croatian home. The Peltzel family, Carlo, Yanya, and their three teenage children, lived in a building that was conveniently not far from the Holiday Inn. Eight months into the siege, their building had already sustained nine direct mortar hits. Mercifully, the Peltzel family had escaped injury. The two journalists joined a parade of friends and neighbors visiting the Peltzels that Christmas afternoon. After they'd removed their flak jackets at the door, the two men and their translator were led across a polished parquet floor to seats at the dining room table, within sight of the bullet and shrapnel holes in the Peltzels' living room walls. And then... To the men's utter astonishment given the scarcity of food in Sarajevo, they were served from a platter of baked treats. With the aid of their translator, the two men learned that Carlo and Yanya were both devout Catholics and both had attended Mass that morning. But they had attended two separate services at different times and in two different churches. You see, during the siege, parents in Sarajevo never left their homes at the same time or attended the same event. That way, if one of them were shot or caught by a bomb, there would be a surviving parent to look after the children. As for the 
miraculous platter of Christmas goodies? The Peltzels had begun their painstaking preparations a full four months before Christmas. They'd foraged for nuts back in August. They'd put aside small portions of their meager UN rations and then left them untouched despite their constant hunger. They had scraped together enough money that Yanya was able to buy four eggs on the black market just a few days before Christmas. It was a far cry from the nearly 200 eggs she would normally use during the holidays, which made those four eggs all the more precious. Now, there was no electricity for the family's oven, of course, and so instead, like other women across the city, Yanya did her baking in the family's wood stove. That's right. During the siege, almost every apartment and home in Sarajevo had one, a makeshift tin or iron box with a chimney attachment that funneled smoke outside. The Peltzels had carefully stocked up on wood to make sure there would be enough both for their holiday baking and to heat their home for their visitors on Christmas Day. Like everyone in the city, they had scavenged this wood from Sarajevo's ruined buildings and its few remaining trees. And so it was that when Peter and Kevin arrived, they entered a home as warm and fragrant as a bakery. But the two men hadn't come empty-handed, of course, and as their visit neared its end, they placed their own simple gifts on the dining room table. All five family members stared in silence at those gifts for so long, their mouths hanging open, that the two journalists turned to look at each other. They were certain they'd done something wrong, broken some rule of etiquette. But then Carlo recovered enough to explain his family's reaction to the single banana and four tangerines on the table. The family was not offended. Far from it. They were delighted with the journalists' gifts. They simply hadn't seen anything as extraordinary as a banana or tangerines since the beginning of the war. Before the journalists took their leave, Peter had one more question, a deeply personal question, and it concerned his host's faith. How can you believe in a god who allows such things to happen, he asked bluntly. It was Yanya, Carla's wife, who answered this time, although she'd been quiet for most of the visit. And she didn't seem offended by the question. In fact, she was smiling as she answered. I believe more strongly than before, she said. I can't explain why, but I have more faith now. I pray more. I believe more. 
Peter Moss wrote about this visit in his book, Love Thy Neighbor, A Story of War. And in that book, Peter wrote, I can't decide whether her answer was touching or insane. But the more I think about it, the more I find that if I had to select one Christmas in which the spirit of the occasion reached its fullest expression, I would select my Christmas in Sarajevo, because that is where I found miracles. This episode of Hinter Tales was written, narrated, and produced by Rachel Dunstan Muller, with music and sound effects by zapsplat.com. Learn more about my work at racheldunstonmuller.com. 